0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with what are known as the Beatitudes. They begin with the word blessed. As we saw last week, Luke tells us that after the baptism of Jesus and then his temptation in the wilderness, he went home to Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, we're told, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I would argue that what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying in another way, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because he begins by proclaiming the Lord's favor. This sermon comes after Jesus has been teaching in Galilee, in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, we are told in chapter 4, healing every disease and sickness among the people. And large crowds followed him, not simply from Galilee, which is to the northern part of Israel, but also from Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan, and the Decapolis, the ten cities. As we saw last Sunday, Jesus began with the word blessed, a pronouncement of God's favor. He is announcing God's favor. The crowds that he's preaching to, they know this formula. This is found in the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, time and time again. Blessed is, or blessed are. They also have expectations of hearing about God's favor as they see it being defined. In their minds, they have a definition of what God's favor will look like. They are not prepared for what Jesus will, in fact, say. And I would argue that for all all our knowing what blessing and blessed mean, we, in fact, are not prepared as well. Our default setting goes in a very different direction from what we hear from Jesus. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me read you four words. blessing rich, blessed, poor. In the words of the song from Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things does not belong. Three of these things belong together. Three of these things are of the same kind. Can you guess which one of these doesn't belong? I think we would go with poor because blessing, blessed, rich, yeah, that's normally what we think. When someone has prospered, we say God has blessed that person. And yet, as Jesus begins this proclaiming of God's favor, he goes in an entirely different direction. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I mentioned last week that another time that Jesus preached a similar sermon, which is recorded in Luke, he said, blessed are the poor. Um, Is it the poor or is it the poor in spirit? I would argue that, in fact, there isn't a conflict. The question we should ask is, what does Jesus mean? To whom is he referring? He's not simply referring to a poor person. Rather, it indicates, the language he uses, someone who is a beggar, someone who, either from fear or in order to get something from others, cowers or cringes. He's not talking about someone who's poor in a passive way, but someone who, in fact, actively acknowledges, I am poor and dependent upon someone else. In this sermon, Jesus wants us to see ourselves as dependent upon God. He's speaking of those who know they are poor. Basic to the gospel, and I think for many of us, we have still not embraced this, but basic to the gospel, the good news of the kingdom is poverty. And not merely economic poverty, or poverty of circumstances. Otherwise, we give everything away and just live as poorly as we could. It's not even spiritual poverty. See, the majority of the people in the world are, in fact, poor, live in poverty. They live in difficult circumstances of one kind or another. Many of them do not have sufficient food, clothing, or shelter. But the entire world is spiritually in poverty, spiritually destitute. And Jesus is not saying, Blessed is the world, that God has poured his favor out on the world. He is pointing to those who, by God's grace, see that they are poor, acknowledge their poverty, and they look to God as the only source. It is to these people that God has given grace. See, it's one thing to acknowledge that you are poor in the sight of God. It's quite another to turn to God as the only one who can and will sustain you. The majority of people in the world do not want to be poor. They don't want to be poor. But they also do not want Jesus Christ. And those, it sounds very binary, but it's, those are the choices. One can either be poor or one can, in fact, embrace the Lord Jesus. As long as we are in this life, we are to look to someone else, to another, to sustain us. Because we are not able to sustain ourselves. No one is. When a person sees himself or herself as rich, he or she has both hands full of what they want. And if your hands are full, as I said last week, then nobody can give you anything. It is only when your hands are empty that you recognize you cannot sustain yourself that then you can, in fact, receive the grace of God and be blessed by God. So, Jesus is saying, it's blessed is a person who has empty hands. God can then... Give this person grace. Jesus would say later on in the Gospel of Matthew it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We are to day by day, moment by moment, recognize that we need God. We are poor. We will always need the grace of God. We will never be able to rely upon ourselves. Now, having established this basic principle, Jesus now builds on it. Because it is one thing to acknowledge that you are spiritually poor. It is another to acknowledge that you are to grieve and mourn over it. Look, if you would, at verse number four, the second beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mentioned last week that some see the beatitude as being based on Isaiah 61. Let me read to you the first three verses. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This may sound familiar. This is what Jesus read when he went back to his hometown. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and and release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Six times in these three verses, the Lord speaks of mourning or of grieving. Now, mourning has a great tradition in the Old Testament, the New Testament as well, but we'll look at the Old Testament. In the book of Ezra, the Israelites have been in captivity in Babylon and now they've come back to Jerusalem. We read, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large number of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Ezra withdrew from the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib while he was there he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles in Ezekiel chapter 9 then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who who had the writing kit at his side and said to him go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it David in Psalm 119, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. See, in Scripture, mourning has a real place. We have one of the books of the Old Testament named Lamentations, that is, weepings or mournings. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. So when Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, he stands firmly, I would say, in the tradition of God's people that we see in the Old Testament. The idea of mourning and grieving. But you may be thinking something, and you'll forgive me, but from Princess Bride, you keep using this word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Most of us, when we think about mourning, we think about grieving. And certainly there is a place for that in our lives as we experience loss, as uh, things don't go as we think they should. But Jesus here is not talking about being sad. He's not talking about being depressed over something or anything. It's the second beatitude, and it builds on the first. And the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn. That is, mourning over our spiritual poverty. It is one thing to say, yes, I am poor. It is quite another to be contrite, to mourn, to be remorseful over your poverty. When John the Baptist preached and Jesus after him, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, what was expected was tears, mourning, contrition, not jubilation. One might think the kingdom of heaven is near. This is great news. But what John preached and what Jesus preached after him was repent. You need to repent over your sins. In preparing for the kingdom, one is to repent. Amos in the Old Testament wrote to this effect. Woe to those who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. If you wish, you're waiting for the kingdom of heaven. Why? It will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? John confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had heard about this guy out near the Jordan River. They came out to see what was going on. And he said, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." I would argue that one of those fruits is mourning over one's sins. It is sorrow over our sins. If we have done wrong, are we not to feel something about that? We are not to coldly say, I am a sinner, I have sinned, I am spiritually poor. Rather, we are to be grieved by that fact. Stop and think a minute. Have you ever hurt someone who was dear to you? Have you ever broken your word to someone who was close to you? And then when you reconciled, you cried. Because there was real sorrow for what you had done. When we sin against God, we break the covenant. We offend God. We grieve God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So when we confess our sins, when we say, I am poor in spirit, are we not in fact to mourn, to grieve? Ezra In the chapter earlier, before the one I read earlier, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Yeah, This cannot simply be as though you're giving a deposition that you're saying, Yeah, yeah, okay, I've sinned, I'm a sinner, I've done something I shouldn't do. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We are to mourn. We are not to despair like Judas. We are not to be hypocrites like King Saul. We are not to force ourselves to grieve. It is not merely to be an ex- external act. We are to think about We are poor in spirit, and we are to mourn over the reality of that poverty. One might say, well, are we to mourn over anything else? And I would say, yes, we are to mourn for others, especially what sin has done in their lives. I may mourn because I have sinned, but I may also be deeply grieved because I see what sin has done to others. In the book of Lamentations, we read streams of tears flow from my eyes, Because my people are destroyed. And then we read of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Paul grieved for his fellow Jews. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. We are to mourn over our sins. Well, if this is the case, why don't we? Why don't we mourn? Why don't we grieve over our sins? I remember some time ago, Someone suggested that when we have the prayer of confession that we also provide a bag of ashes or dirt that we could put on our heads to express instead of simply reading something off a piece of paper. Why do we not mourn when we confess our sins? Well, I think, first of all, the fact is there are certain sins that we are quite comfortable with that I would say if they were on Facebook, they would get a like. These are sins that we like, that... Yeah, we know they're wrong, but it's it's not that big of a deal. Um, There's a certain sweetness to them that hypnotizes us, that puts our hearts under its spell. We do not mourn for sin oftentimes because we are comfortable with sin. Because we have come to, in fact, treasure certain sins. What the writer of Hebrews says, the sin that so easily entangles So that's one reason we don't mourn. The second is that oftentimes we despair. And despair is not to be confused with mourning. There is an important difference. Despair sees no hope. There is no hope. Either in thinking or saying, a person says, God cannot forgive me that sin. They despair of any forgiveness whatsoever. Or they may say to themselves, I cannot believe I committed that sin. So they don't mourn, they simply despair. Or I think perhaps the most deadly is when we say, I cannot forgive myself for having committed that sin. That's not mourning over your sin. That is despairing. It's this false imitation of mourning. It is in fact a refusal to mourn compare the example of Judas who betrayed Jesus and the example of Peter who denied Jesus Judas committed suicide Peter wept bitterly so despair is not the answer mourning and grieving over our sin is I think a third reason we don't mourn is that we take God's grace for granted God will forgive me that's what God does isn't God a God of mercy? So the fact that we've done something wrong, yes, we acknowledge that. And, and, and maybe somewhere in our hearts we're like, yeah, I, I really shouldn't have done that, and that's not a good thing to do. But we don't grieve over it because we're like, well, you know, God will take care of it. You know, just sort of erase it off the books and I'll be fine. Christ has died for me. He has forgiven all my sins. Why should I mourn? God is in fact merciful, but if you read scripture, for whom is, or to whom is he merciful? Is it the presumptuous sinner or the grieving and mourning sinner? We read in Isaiah 55, Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. There is no mercy if we do not forsake our sins. And we will not forsake our sins if we do not mourn and grieve over our sins. I think another reason why we do not mourn is simply procrastination. I read today from Hebrews 4. It's also found in Hebrews 3 twice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We may confess our sins, but do we grieve? We might say, well, I really don't have the time. I'll get around to it. I'm really busy. If you recognize your dependence upon God and your poverty and your sin, would you not immediately mourn? Would you not need to be reminded? Would you not need to run to Christ and confess your sins? I'm reminded of a friend of our family who had a habit that whenever he would go to the doctor... The doctor would say, okay, this is what's wrong with you. And in this man's case, there were several significant diagnoses. I mean, his health was really bad. And the doctor said, you, this is what's wrong with you, and this is what you need to do. And every time this man would say, but doctor, if I don't do that, what will happen? You know, if, I don't, if I don't have the surgery, if I don't take this medication, what will happen? I think in many ways we're the same way. Yes, we know what we've done is wrong. We know we need to confess and yeah, maybe mourn and grieve our sins, but not right now. And what will happen if in fact we don't do that? What does it mean to mourn for your sins? I've been talking about it, but what does it mean? Let me suggest to you several things. First of all, we are to mourn for our sins more than we are for the consequences of our sins. There are examples of this throughout Scripture. Think of Cain, who having killed his brother, having been told his punishment, that the ground would not produce crops for him and that he would be a restless wanderer, cries out to the Lord. And what is it that he cries out to God about? What is it that he mourns? My punishment is more than I can bear. He does not say... I killed my own brother, righteous Abel. No, this is not biblical mourning. This is being more concerned with the consequence than the act itself. Think of Pharaoh after the plague of hail, said to Moses, this time I have sinned. After the plague of locusts, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. One might ask, Pharaoh, what deadly plague is it that you have in mind? Is it the locust? I would suggest that's not the problem we have here. The problem is sin and how that plague of sin has hardened your heart. Think of Esau, who sold his birthright to his younger twin brother Jacob. We read about this in Hebrews in a passage that used to really confuse me and trouble me. Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, he wanted, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He couldn't bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. In the King James, it says he tried to repent. And I'm like, oh no, this is terrible. He wanted to repent, but he couldn't. Now, it's not repentance that he's talking about. Why was Esau upset? Why was he mourning? Because of this terrible... The blessing to the oldest son was a gift from God, and he sold it for a bowl of soup. That's what he should have been mourning. But no, he was mourning the fact that he would no longer get the blessing from his father. Consequences follow our sins. Not always, though. Because God is gracious... Um, as we read in the Psalms, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Um, if, in fact, we receive the right consequence of our sin, I think we'd all be dead today. Okay, God is gracious. But when we mourn, are we mourning our sins or are we fearing the possible consequences that might come down the pike? How do we, or how can we learn to mourn for sin more than for suffering? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that sin is an act of hostility against God. It is contrary to God's law. It is a breaking of God's law. It's against God and his nature. God has forgiven our sins, and yet we indulge in them, we commit these sins, um, an act of hostility. Whatever God says, sin says the opposite. If we are the people of God and we sin, I think we should recognize that we have done something wrong, an act of hostility. Let me ask you this. What is worse, an enemy or a traitor? An enemy is someone who is encamped against you. They are your enemy. A traitor is someone in your midst who fights against you. And if we are God's people and we do what we should not do, we should recognize this as an act of treason. And we should mourn over that. We should also see sin as the highest ingratitude. God has given us everything. He has sent his Son. Yet we sin against him. Should we not mourn? In Zechariah 13, if someone asks him, What are these wounds on your body? He will answer, The wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Sin is, in fact, an attempt to wound God. It is a child stabbing a parent. It is a person stabbing his or her closest friend. Sin is the highest ingratitude in response to God's grace. Should we not mourn? should also recognize that sin separates us from God. David's psalm of confession, he said, "Do not take me or do not cast me from your presence or take your holy spirit from me." Death brings separation, so does sin. But perhaps our hearts are so dull, we are so self-sufficient that we are unaware that in fact a separation, a gap has occurred between us and God. We're like Samson. Remember the story of Samson? Delilah kept wondering, what's the secret of your strength? And he kept getting up, and whatever she would devise, he was able to overcome. But then he told her the truth, and she cut his hair, and he said, I'll get up, like I've always done before. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. I recognize that there are two forces outside of ourselves that tell us to be rich and discourage us from mourning over sin. There's the surrounding culture, a culture that in general does everything to keep us laughing. Think about it, there's nothing so sober, so tragic, so significant, important or personal that someone somewhere down the road will make a joke about it. But it's not only the surrounding culture It's the church as well Does anyone preach Over mourning Over sin Does the church practice Grieving over sin Just a thought But What do you imagine would be The average congregation's response To a sermon Weeping or laughter Some years ago I received something in the mail On pastoral counseling The title was Using humor when dealing with death. We don't want to weep. We don't want to mourn. We want to laugh. But there is a place for mourning. The second part of this beatitude is the blessing that comes for those who mourn. They will be comforted. Do you remember the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2? Jesus the infant is taken to the temple. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's redemption. And what did he say when he saw the infant? He was, he was praising God. But we are told that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And one of the hymns we sang today, he spoke of the Spirit as the comfort of Israel. What is that comfort? What is that consolation? It is the person of Jesus I could say a lot more about being comforted, and perhaps the next time that I speak, I will. Um, But what I want you to think about now, as I bring this to a close, is those who do not mourn do not need to be comforted. And it seems strange to me that people would speak of comfort when in fact they will not mourn for their sins. The second part of the Beatitude is nothing if we do not embrace the first part. When we hear the Beatitudes, we hear the qualities that are to be true of those who are the Lord's people, those who are blessed, those who are blessed. And yet, what Jesus says all these centuries later still sounds so foreign, so strange, so alien. It's not just because we live in 2016 here in the United States it's not just because of the surrounding culture I think it's because of the human condition as we hear in Isaiah the Lord says for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways we should confess that all we like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way what Jesus says in proclaiming God's favor We like the favor part, but in what he has to say sounds so strange. And I'm reminded a man in 16th century England, the first time he was able to read the Gospels, he cried out, either these are not the Gospels, or we are not Christians. Because the reality is we like the blessed part of the statement, but we don't like the poor in spirit we don't like the mourn and the other things that will come in the weeks following. But Jesus, in proclaiming the gospel, the good news said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, even when we hear good news, we already in our minds have certain expectations. When we hear the word blessed, we have certain thoughts that come to our minds that this is what it will look like. And we are so thrown by being told that to be blessed is to be poor in spirit, to mourn. We like the second part, for is the kingdom of heaven, they will be comforted. We simply don't like the first part. We confess that we do not mourn over our sins as we should. We forget how evil sin is. That to commit sin as your child is an attempt to do harm to you. To commit sin as one of your people is an act of treason. And we should weep and mourn. And it is in our weeping and mourning that we are comforted by the person of Jesus. He who is the gospel, the good news. He is the proclamation of the Lord's favor. By your spirit, help us to think on these things in the days to come. I do ask that you would watch over us as this heat wave comes keep us safe from harm may we watch over our neighbors love our neighbors as we love ourselves for those that are traveling that you would keep them safe as well and our dear Father on this Father's Day we are grateful for all you have done for us for the fathers you have given us May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.